Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and again, we're going to be talking about the Kingdom of God, and that's a big subject, because the Kingdom of God is the dominion of man upon earth under the authority of God. Now, when you throw these words out like God, and the authority of God, and dominion of man, and, you know, what do they mean? They're words. They have definition. We can put those words together in a sentence, defining each word. Of course, most words have multiple definitions. And so, which one applies as you use it in the sentence? Well, usually you need another sentence (laughs) in order to clarify the first one. And adjectives are good. They tell you a little bit. But ultimately... We're dealing with something that's extremely finite, which is your your personal mental capacity to understand what it is that uh, is being said. And so you have to have an effort on your part to actually get into the mind of the individual saying it. And when that individual lived 2,000 years ago, that could be a little difficult, a little tricky. Because you're going to look at what was said 2,000 years ago or 3,000 years ago. Uh, you're going to look at it through your eyes today, through the definition of words you have in your mind today, through the impressions you have today of what it was like yesterday. Or 2,000 years ago. And so a great deal can be distorted in that personal mental process of trying to figure out what was being said. And it's your responsibility to try to figure out what is the truth of what was said. What what did the author mean? I mean, you can have uh, poets... And uh, musicians uh, uh, who sing songs and and uh, recite their poems and uh, they're ambiguous. You you know Bob Dylan. You don't know exactly what this all means. Truth is, some of his early songs he didn't know what they mean either, because the condition he was in when he probably wrote them. But. Uh, the fact is also that when you write poetry, a lot of times you have dual meanings in that, that poem. There's multiple meanings in that poem. So you may be right and somebody else may be right in their interpretation because the interpretation is multiple. There's more than one meaning. Parables are this way. Jesus spoke in parables. And they... The apostles actually called him out. Why do you speak in parables? And he said very clearly, because it's given unto you to know, but it's not given unto them, these other people that he's speaking in parables to. Well, he's speaking in parables to you because you're reading the Bible and you're reading these parables. 
and you're coming to conclusions as to what Jesus meant by the parable. Now, Jesus also had very specific instructions at times. Very direct statements that he made. And a lot of people misunderstand some of those statements because of the fact that they don't understand the context of the time in which Jesus was saying them. They're translated well enough, but the time in which Jesus was saying them is not always well understood. Which is why we've done lots of shows, written lots of articles. We've included some of this information in the books that we have free online at preparingyou.com and and at hisholychurch.org so that you can get a clearer picture uh, that with thousands of footnotes and hundreds of links to other articles that make even greater clarifications as to you know why Rome was in Judea. Why was Judean government the way organized the way it was? Was that the way that Moses organized it? Was there changes over a period of time like in First Samuel where they decided to have a king? Why why did when they decided they didn't want a king anymore and the king wouldn't release them from their agreement that the king could be king, did they go back to their tents instead of back to their cities? What did that mean? They, you know, they go back to their cities, they're going back to their civil structure, their membership in this kingdom, this government, which was the kingdom of God. With a minor variation. And that minor variation was actually a major variation because it was, there was going to be a king in Israel. God knew that they might want a king someday. He didn't advise it. And he warned that they should write a constitution limiting the power of that king. And he explained that in Deuteronomy 17. If you want to look up Deuteronomy, uh, to find out what was supposed to be in that con, uh, constitution, I would advise you to look it up at preparingyou.com because we have the whole Bible there with lots of links and connect, showing you the meaning of words and the context of the time, how they would uh, translate into actions today, actions in 1776 or when they wrote the constitution, how it has to do with individual rights And that dominion, when God gave dominion to Adam and Eve in what we call the garden, this protected place, and they had this dominion over all these things, the animals that creep on the ground and stuff, he did not give them dominion of man over man. He gave them dominion, of course, over their children. But then that dominion their children had, Cain and Abel and Seth, was passed down from generation to generation in what we would call the corporeal and incorporeal hereditaments of personality. Which you can find out more about that if you look up our article on soul. Because the soul, uh, I actually added to that that article, just last night, or actually early, early this morning, because of the fact that I'm writing other articles, other uh, essays on other aspects of culture, 
and the church and what the church should be. And so that ended up uh, including certain words like soul and culture and tribe and tribalism. And so I ended up going to those pages and adding something so that uh, they become cohesive in all the different articles that we have. So that if you're reading down one article or one essay and you come to a a spot where we use a certain word and you want to know what that word means, you can go to a page that will explain that in in reference to the Bible. I mean, like you can take a word like... uh, uh, ideology or uh, postmodern postmodernism, and uh, you can look up that definition. You could Google it, so to speak, and they'll give you three definitions. Well, for most of our articles, we're not interested in all three definitions. We're interested in maybe one or two uh, definitions of it because we're not using it in the other sense of the third definition. Again, that's what I was saying at the beginning is that words can have multiple definitions. I mean, some words will have 15 different definitions, some of them quite different than the other. Sometimes it just has to do with the use of the word or or how words are used in different areas so that, you know, if you have thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of books over a period of time, words can change their meaning. In, you know, what... What a word means today may not be what it meant in 1776. Like religion today. We've we've talked about that many times. Religion today, if you Google that, it's what you think about a supreme being. It's an opinion. That's what religion is. It's your opinion about the supreme being. That's religion. But 200 years ago, when they were writing the Constitution... Religion wasn't defined as merely an opinion about a supreme being. Religion was the pious performance of a duty to God and your fellow man. And so what's your duty to God? What's your duty to your fellow man? And can your duty to your fellow man change? Well, of course it can by covenant. If you make an agreement, if you give me this free stuff, I'll give you this stuff. You know, a portion of my labor. You know, like the bondage of Egypt. If you give us free food, because we're out of food, we're out of money. If you give us free food, we'll give you 20% of our labor from now on. That's the bondage of Egypt. Have you ever made a deal like that? That if you can get free stuff, that you will give up a portion of your labor? Has anybody ever made an offer like that to you? Because if somebody made an offer like that and you signed up for the free stuff, your duty to your fellow man has changed. Now you have a duty to give up a portion of your labor to the guy who offered to give you free stuff. And we actually covered this in a show just in the last week or so. If you join the network, we'll send you a copy of it. That, that's what you did with FDR and Social Security. You signed up for Social Security. You were a, a theoretical promise of Social Security with a couple of caveats in there, like we don't actually have to provide you Social Security, but you will have to provide us with payments 
of portions of your labor every year, every month, every day. A portion of your labor has to go somewhere else to somebody else. But we might give you Social Security because we explained in, and, and we have a whole article and uh, we have audios up there now on podcasts. I'll probably add the one that we just recently uh, covered the same topic uh, and a little bit little different angle, a little bit more present time, what's going on today. They don't have to give you any benefits. That's written in the agreement from the beginning. You have no guarantee of benefits, but you have guaranteed that you will give a portion of your labor to them. That's what's written in there. I don't care what CNN tells you or what you heard on the news or what you imagine. I'm just telling you what the facts are. Nothing but the facts. What it says. What the Supreme Court said about it. You have a duty and an obligation to pay a portion of your labor to government. Now, the government has duties and obligation to pay those that they borrow money from. All this goes back to what we talked about several weeks ago in a show, Pacta Servanda Sun. We have an article up on Pacta Servanda Sun. First time I heard that, that I can recall, which was many years ago, decades ago. I, I, yeah, I, I know a little Latin. I know a little Greek and a little Hebrew. And so, Pacta Servanda Sun is agreements must be kept. Those are those obligations. And that's well established in maxims, maxims of law, that agreements must be kept. You make an agreement, now you have more duties and obligations, more responsibilities to someone, whoever you made the agreement with, or whoever the person you made the agreement with, the entity you made the agreement with, makes an agreement with. You know, the Great Reset is coming out of a process of agreements. Not just your agreements with governments that have made agreements with banking cartels who have made agreements with the powers that be, but the powers that be, the Klaus Schwab's of the world, are making agreements with entities as well. But my advice is never make a deal with the devil. And I believe that Klaus Schwab is and his minions like Noah Harari are making a deal with the devil either just spiritually just mentally in their own hearts and minds because they've accepted certain ideas that just aren't so but maybe they actually are making the actual physical deals I I wasn't there (laughs) I don't know but I certainly see evidence of it Because I see patterns in history. And those patterns are repeating themselves. You know, the argument in the... We visited several different chapters in Genesis, but in Genesis, the, the, the devil, Satan, Beelzebub, the snake, the reptile in the tree, is making a deal, or explaining a deal... With Eve and Adam. That they can eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they will be like God. They can decide for themselves. 
in their own tree of knowledge what is good and what is evil. Not only for themselves, but according to Noah Harari, he can make those decisions for you and for others and for your neighbor. You can exercise authority one over the other, over the your neighbor's thinking, over your neighbor's rights, over your neighbor's possessions. And they may have a case that they can do this, but to what end? You see, if you make a deal with them and they make a deal with the devil, you got to deal with the devil. And I don't think you're equipped to deal with the devil. So you may need to repent to get back to the garden. You may be necessary for you to see the truth about yourself, your weaknesses, your own personal apostasy in order to find the truth so that you can be saved. You know, a lot of people, I, I, I converse with a number of people from time to time and I, I challenge different people on uh, Facebook groups that I happen to be on. And I do this as kind of an exercise to see what other people are thinking. And I, I find it amazing that I point out certain things. And man, that there is silence in the room. I've, I've seen this for years and I've talked about it where there'll be some group that's arguing, people in a group are arguing back and forth and they'll, one will say this, another one will write this, another one will write this, and they're just going back. And, and I have actually done this in physical world as well, not just on Facebook and, and these groups. And then I say something and everything stops. <laughs> they don't all come back and say, yeah, we agree with you. Yeah, we get your point. And they just stop. They just cease their riotous behavior. That, which is actually pretty handy if you actually find yourself in a riot. <laughs> which I, I've also told stories about that. But the reality is it's the truth is a powerful thing. But the truth requires you see the whole truth. And the most important truth for you to see is the truth about yourself. And that means you have to see that what you thought was true before, that just ain't so, is a lie. And a lot of people aren't willing to admit that. If you're really looking for the truth, you have to look for the truth about yourself, which is what you see in these... uh, uh, progressive woke peoples, they not only don't want to see the truth, they want to imagine they have the truth. And if you try to speak something contrary to the truth, that's hate speech, that's violence. And they want to shut you up. And and that's their spirit. But what I'm going to talk to you about probably for a little bit of the part of the show, I was going to get into Micah, but I think we'll save that for another time. But uh, something came out and it came to my attention. Somebody sent me a link to it. And uh, it's by Jordan Peterson where he talks about uh, a message to the Christian churches. And it was presented by Jordan Peterson. If you look up message to the Christian churches and just add in the name Jordan Peterson, you can probably find a copy of it. Uh, Because it's all over the internet now. But in this uh, 
Jordan, you know, he's, he's dealing a lot of times with psychological issues because that's what he is, is a psychologist, a practicing psychologist, professor of psychology. And he's addressed uh, Genesis and 15 different shows on what Genesis means from a psychological point of view. And some of his observations are fairly astute. He doesn't really understand... You know, all of what's going on in Genesis, what what's actually happening. Uh, but, of course, it's an, a lot of it's an allegory form, a lot of metaphors in there. Then, of course, he's not reading it in the original Hebrew. He's reading translations. And he's not coming to it with a clean slate because he's coming to it based on what he's been told by churches that Genesis means. But he does a pretty good job. I'm not picking on him, but he's somewhat handicapped by the fact that there's not very many real Christian churches out there. There's a lot of churches claiming to be Christian, but of course Jesus told us that many would claim to be Christian, but they actually don't know him. Just like many claim to be following Moses and they didn't know him. And then when the modern Christian wanted to find out what Moses was talking about in the Old Testament in the Pentateuch and the Torah they went to the same guys who got it wrong the first time and so because they don't really know what was going on in that original text in those original societies they were more vulnerable to apostasy themselves but anyway in in his dissertation, calling on the uh, Christian churches to reach out to young men uh, and to bring them in, which uh, is kind of scary in my opinion because uh, it's kind of like, you know, uh, the choice between the devil and the deep blue sea. But uh, he says the phenomena that can be easily accounted for, but let me try now in the in the West, because of the weight of historical guilt that is upon us, a variant of the scene of original sin in a very real sense, and because of the very real attempt by those possessed by what might be described as unhelpful ideas to weaponize that guilt our young people face a demoralization that perhaps is unparalleled, more unparalleled than anything we've seen before. So what's he talking about in this? Uh, there's no, I, I just downloaded the transcript. I didn't, uh, and of course there's no punctuation in there. It would be nice to pop up the recording so you could actually hear him say it. But he's talking about demoralization of the people. And I was in the process of writing the essay on tribalism. And there are certain things in tribalism. And tribalism itself, there's nothing wrong with tribalism itself. It's, it's the values that your tribe has. The culture that your tribe has. And that culture is dependent upon what you're willing to see or not see. But that demoralization can turn your tribe into savages. And that's what he's talking about, is this demoralization. We'll be right back to Keys to the Kingdom. Well, welcome back. So, what is the, what is this thing that, uh, 
may cause this demoralization of the young people. That he talks about weaponizing that guilt. Uh, our young people face uh, demoralization. What devastates young men, he goes on to say, will eventually do the same to young women. The fact is, you know, I, I always thought it was funny when uh, Trudeau was talking about, uh, oh, we don't want to say mankind, we want to say person kind. And, you know, it's it's almost surrealistic because a, a person is a member person is not a man. A man is a creation of God. A man is an individual. But a person is a member. He's not an individual. He's a member. He might be an individual member, but in legal terms, individual member is almost an oxymoron. Because you're not an individual. You're a member, an individual person, so to speak, individual member. The person identity is in its membership. It's not in its individuality. And just understanding how words are used, the word person, you might use it, you know, everybody's a person, right? Well, no, not if they're not a member. Depends on the context of how the word is used. I actually had this conversation with a federal employee once. I said, no, not everybody is a person. <laughs> and... Uh, uh, and so, you know, it, it's not bad to be a person. You necessarily, I mean, if you're a member of the mafia, that would not be good, but it's the mafia that makes it not good, not the fact that you're a person or that you're a member. So, anyway, this devastating young, uh, what is devastating young men will also eventually devastate young women, and he talks about uh, nihilism, or nihilism, and uh, that's kind of a doctrine that Nothing actually exists, uh, that the existence of, uh, or values are meaningless, uh, it's a kind of a relentless negativity, and cynicism suggesting that the absence of values, uh, or beliefs, uh, exists, that there is no standard of, you know, nothing, nothing is, you know, yeah, it's kind of, it's a takeoff on the idea that you can't prove anything except that you exist, formally. But still, you, you know, you can't prove that the train is coming down the tracks, but if you see it coming down the tracks, you might want to step off the tracks. Now, formally, you can't prove that it is because it's depending upon what you see and your eyes are subject to distortions and interpretations and and people could be having a hallucination thinking they're seeing a train and and then you have to impart that information. But that's all, you know, philosophy. The train is not philosophy. The train is coming and you better get off the track. <laughs> so... And uh, whether or not you understand it is real, is immaterial. Uh, you are still going to, if if you don't believe in the train, you still may get run over. And th this is going to, I'm going to bring this up again later, but there, are, you have a small child who does not understand why you should not go over there 
by that grassy little bank and water uh, surrounded by trees with gray hanging moss and it looks so beautiful and the water looks so peaceful. Why can't I go play over there? And the father says, you can't go play over there. Don't go play over there. And the son doesn't know why, so he does it anyway. Well, what's over there is an eight-foot alligator laying in the water beneath the surface. They will eat you up. And, of course, I've told the story about the eight-foot alligator that was within feet of me <laughs> along the water when I lived down in, in Texas along the bayous. Uh, the reality is I didn't get eaten up, but uh, it would have been good advice not to go there. <laughs> but uh, the, this is what God does to the prophets is a lot of times gives advice to people don't go there. Don't do this. You know, I'm, I'm going to put this tree of knowledge of good and evil right in the midst of the garden. But don't use it as a source of guidance in your life. Use the tree of life to guide you in your life. Now, of course, those trees are metaphors in an allegory. It's trying to tell you that you have two different sources that you can depend upon for guidance in this life, in this job that God has given you to to dress and keep this planet, to hold dominion over this planet, a protected dominion over this planet. And if you eat of the tree of knowledge, bad things are going to happen. If that is your source, your brain, your your calculating mind as a computer, that's a that's a dangerous source because that can be manipulated. No Harari says he can manipulate it. Facebook thinks he can manipulate it. And even, you know, if you go the I saw a t shirt which you probably all seen too, is uh, it says uh, make 1984 fiction again, <laughs> which is referring to the book 1984. Well, in in that book, Winston thinks he's joining the revolution to fight the tyranny of the world and finds out that the revolution is also run by the tyrants. So, they, they do the same thing in Noah Harari's and Klaus Schwab's Great Reset. For those who won't go along with the mainstream idea, they will get you to go along with another. I mean, there's a lot of people out there that take this guilt thing. You're supposed to be guilty because you're white. You're guilty because some ancestor you had might have owned slaves. You know, I mean, they just got all these things that you're supposed to be guilty of. Which is like original sin. You're supposed to be born with this original sin. A lot of the doctrines concerning original sin are fabricated out of bits and pieces that we find written in the Bible. Now there is, and then you have to understand, then you're using these words like sin. Well, what is sin? I think I have a page on sin. What is sin? Sin is going contrary to what you should be doing. Like eating of the tree of 
the knowledge of good and evil, using that as your source, your guiding light, rather than the actual light of the tree of life. The tree of life is revelation, which is why Jesus says, when he asks his apostles, who am I, who am I, who am I, three times. And the only one who gives the correct answer, supposedly, if we're to believe the text, is Peter, who at that time was called Simon. But Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, for you're a rock, you're a Peter. That's what the... That's what that word means when he says you're Peter. He's not naming him. He's saying you're a rock. Because you know this not by the knowledge of men, by the tree of knowledge, but by revelation. But my flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but revelation. Peter tapped into some source that has been referenced in almost every major religion that is not just based on your ability to reason or rationalize or, you know, figure something out. It's based on something that is quantum, something that is beyond the physical, not flesh and blood. And that's the rock. That rock, that knowing, that faith in something, this comforter from another realm that is our guiding light in this realm. Now, people can call it the Holy Spirit. They can call it a lot of different things. But that's the comforter. It's supposed to be your Holy Spirit. It's not your pastor. He's not your comforter. I mean, he may comfort you. A lot of people may comfort you. You can get a pet. That may comfort you. But the comforter that is sent by Jesus Christ is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is where that revelation comes from. Now, a lot of people think they have the Holy Spirit. A lot of people think they're born again. But they don't even read... The rules, the, you know, we we talk about that a lot, you know, like, uh, I'm an instruction reader, I read the instructions, I'm going to put something together, I will read the instructions, even if they're in broken English. And then I will put it together, based on the instructions and based upon what I think is right. But I will read the instructions. And it's very important to read the instructions, But you have to read the instructions with a desire to know the truth of what they mean. And then you have to ultimately depend upon... You see, even in reading the instructions, when you're reading the Bible, how do you know what you think your understanding is correct? Without the Holy Spirit, that inner revelation of light by a force or power greater than yourself, more expansive than your own mind, How do you know what you're reading is true? How do you know what you think you're reading is true? How do you know what you think you understand is true? Because I know lots of people who say they're born again, but they're still workers of iniquity. They're still doing things that would make me think they don't want to know the truth, which is, you know, you point out that that, uh, Desiring benefits at the expense of your neighbor is a covetous practice. 
desiring benefits by putting the debt of those benefits on the children, your children or your neighbor's children, is a covetous practice. And Peter tells us they will such practices will make us merchandise and curse our children. It's right there in the New Testament. But people don't understand, even though it's also right in the direct instructions of Christ, that if you go to men who call themselves benefactors, men of government, who call themselves benefactors, but exercise authority one over the other to provide you with that benefaction, you're going against what he wants you to do. You're going against your duties to Jesus Christ. You're going against the commandments of Jesus Christ. And according to the Bible, you don't abide in his love. Yet I know lots of people who do that and think they do abide in his love because they imagine that they love Jesus. But when you show them Jesus said this directly, not a metaphor, not a vague parable, not that his parables were vague, but not, you know, something... Subject to interpretation. It's pretty cut and dry. It is not to be that way with you. It is that way with people. And they still claim to be Christian. Of course that practice has made them merchandise and curse their children. And we know that just by watching the 6 o'clock news. Telling how much debt everybody's in. All the members of their system are in debt. And and. Like the imperial cult of Rome, that's what they called it, the imperial cult of Rome, you can't just leave. And this is why a lot of Christians were persecuted, because a lot of Romans, a lot of people, you know, that's that's why the uh, Pharisees hated the Christians. It's because they were joining this other system. Some of them had signed up for the system of the Pharisees, and they couldn't get out. Because once you sign up, and you... You're bound because of what I said earlier. Pacta servanda sunt. Agreements must be kept. And like I said, when I, I first read that, I knew what it meant. And I looked it up. I googled it in the old days. You could do this. Now Google filters all these things with thousands of, you know, uh, filters that change the outcome of your searches. But when I, I looked it up, I found it on lots of web pages, and almost all the web pages, or a large percentage of them, were UN documents. <laughs> documents at the United Nations, or articles written about documents at the United Nations, because that's, they know that's where their power comes from. Agreements must be kept, so they, you have to, you have to make those agreements. And of course we know in the Ten Commandments it tells you to make no covenants. With them, nor with their gods. They're ruling judges. And of course, if you know the meaning of the word gods, that's why Paul says there are gods many. He's talking about judges because it was a word used commonly to address judges in Roman courts, Judean courts, courts all over the Roman Empire. The judges were gods of that court. They weren't the god. They were just gods of that court, ruling judges of that court. But in, in, in recent shows, we've mentioned it. We haven't done a full show on it, but uh, still working on the essay concerning this. There were two major personalities that were refer, referred to as the Son of God. 
at the time of Jesus Christ. There, there were a number of minor ones, but there were at least two major, and I call it major from my point of view. And one, of course, was Jesus Christ, who was called the Son of God. And that's what it was said, that was what Mary was told, that he would be called the Son of God. But who was the other one? Well, Octavius, Augustus Caesar, was called the Son of God. And you had to reaffirm that if you were a member of his social welfare system, his daily ministration, his free bread system operating through the government temples of Rome. You had to reaffirm that annually that he was the Son of God. You were expected, at least the head of your household was expected to reaffirm that. Christians wouldn't do that. Because to them, Jesus was the Son of God. Now, he wasn't going to exercise authority and force the contributions of the people like Augustus Caesar was, because he operated according to a different morality. He was going to, he was going to allow you, according to the perfect law of liberty, the choice to contribute. Even told his ministers, had a whole parable to his ministers that, you know, you go to those who are a part of this system of social welfare, this religion that is used for the pious performance of your duty to God and your fellow man. And you go to that member, that individual member, that member, because of the perfect law of liberty, is still an actual individual. And you say, how much would you owe? And they tell you how much they owe. I mean, you do that with the governments of the world today. You you tell them how much you owe. And then you say, how much can you pay? And they say, I can only pay this much. And he instructs his ministers, if you want to be a good minister, to write down paid in full. That's the way the kingdom of God works. Now, if you're in a system that doesn't work that way, you're not in the kingdom of God. If you're in a system that says, well, you go to jail, you don't pass gold, you don't collect $200. <laughs> you're not in the kingdom of God. Now, if you want to be in the kingdom of God... The instructions say to seek the kingdom of God. Or actually, before that even, we should take the instructions in order. The first part of the instructions is to repent, which, of course, we've covered on articles and programs. Repent means to think differently. Okay, so you need to think differently. You need to think like Christ. You need to think like the early church. And... So that's what repenting is. And they have to seek the kingdom of God. Which is to say the government of God. Which is to say the dominion of God. Not the dominion of Pharaoh or the dominion of Caesar. Or the dominion of Cain or the dominion of FDR. Or the dominion of Donald Trump. But the dominion of God. And his righteousness. So what does that look like? To seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. See, you haven't been doing that. You've been seeking to go to church. And it's all these churches that we just 
saw Jordan Peterson saying young men need to go to churches and churches need to open their arms for young men. One of the things that Jordan Peterson always talks about is responsibility. Everybody talks about rights, but Jordan Peterson, one of the first, you know, I don't know, prominent uh, people in the modern media who was talking about taking back your responsibilities. I've been talking about it for over half a century. That if you want your rights back, you have to take back your responsibilities because rights and responsibilities are correlative to each other. You cannot have one without the other. And if you go to men who exercise authority and you give them your responsibilities, they will have power over your rights. You you will become merchandise. You will go back into the bondage of Egypt where a portion of your labor belongs to the government. That's what will happen. And of course, those of you who are paying attention know that is what has happened. And it's happened while all these churches that Jordan Peterson wants you to go to were doing their thing, which is not what Christ's thing is. On their watch, the whole world has gone back into the bondage of Egypt. Not just, not just Judeans or, or Israelites in Egypt or in Babylon, but the whole world. Babylon the Great. They're all back in the bondage of Egypt. And in order to do that, they had to devastate young men. And they are continuing the process of devastating young men. And of course, young women. And they devastate young men so much that young men devastate young women. And... uh, Jordan Peterson is seeing the evidence of this. And from a psychologist's point of view, he's saying that they need to have the values that are supposed to be taught in the church. And you can go to a lot of these different churches and they do teach many of the values of Jesus Christ. And values are what makes a culture a good culture or a bad culture. Because all cultures are not the same. Of course, the postmodernists will tell you that it doesn't make any difference. That your truth, that's truth. My truth, that's truth. It's my truth. But no, there is a truth and then there are lots of opinions about what the truth is. Because that train is really coming down the track. If it hits you, it will turn you into a splattered bug on the front of that train or just knock you into the ditch or grind you under. That's reality. Your opinion as to whether the train is coming or not is irrelevant to the facts. But the postmodernists would say there are no facts. There is no train. <laughs> you know, that uh, that th- this is good and this is evil. And I've already decided this and my truth trumps your truth. Well, the truth, truth trumps your opinion. 
And what's happened now is that everybody's camped out on the track and the train is coming and they don't know where to go. Christ told you where to go, but you don't want to admit that somebody actually knows the truth. Even to the point of saying, I am the truth. Now, of course, that statement in itself, once you go back to the Old Testament, when Moses asked God what his name is, and he says, I am that I am. So when Jesus says, I am the truth, is is he actually saying before the translation that I am is the truth? The I am. What is, is the truth. If the train is really coming down the track, that's the truth. Because it's really there. Your opinion is not the truth. And so we're going to try to find out what the truth is when we come back to the keys of the kingdom and see if we can find a little direction towards that kingdom of God and his righteousness. Welcome back. So in Jordan Peterson's presentation where he's calling to the Christian churches, which, like I say, is hard to find real Christian churches. Apostate Christian churches are on every corner. Now, that's a bold statement on my part, and it's supposedly an accusation, but... I'm supposed to warn you if you're off track, or in this case, on the track, but the wrong track. <laughs> so, and, and if I don't warn you and you get run over by a train, then I might have guilt and I don't want that guilt. So I'm going to warn you that you need to conform to Christ, not conform to your local church. Because the local churches, as predicted by Christ, are the many who say they're coming in his name, but they actually are workers of iniquity doing the opposite. They're not born again. If you read the extra few verses after the one reference to born again, you'll see that if you're still doing these bad things, these iniquitous things, then you're not born again. That's how you know that you're not born again because you're still doing the bad things. And, of course, you need to know what bad things that would include, such as coveting your neighbor's goods through men who exercise authority. That would be a covetous practice, desiring those benefits at your neighbor's expense. I know that that's very common today and everybody thinks it's okay. But, of course, that's what Christ predicted, that everybody would go this every way, other way, even the very elect. So, But all you have to do is think differently, repent and say, well, you know, we shouldn't be giving power to men who want power to exercise authority to take away from our neighbor to get free benefits. Well, of course, if we actually did that, which would be the Christian thing to do, is to not depend upon those men who exercise authority to get the stuff that we want for free, if we were actually going to repent enough to be that way, all public schools funded by taxation would go away. Now, that doesn't mean public schools would go away. It just means that they, those funded by school, uh, by taxation, would go away. We had public schools way back in the 1800s that were entirely funded by free will offerings. They might be on land that was set aside in the, in the United States. Madison had this idea of setting land aside as that we came across new land, setting it aside for educational purposes. But and, and upon which you could put public schools. 
both Jefferson and Madison wanted public schools, but not at taxpayers' expense. They knew that you had to create them by free will offerings, or if you did it by government authority, through forced offerings, the government would gain control. See, it's your responsibility... Well, you could create private schools, and that's your responsibility. But it would also, because you have to be concerned about the poor in not legal charity, but free will offerings, it would be good that in some communities, if necessary, either create public schools through free will offerings, where you still gain, you still hold control and haven't turned over the control to men who exercise authority, or create private schools that you open the doors to the general public. And, of course, Harvard, uh, Princeton, a lot of these early universities back in the 1700s did exactly that. You could go to those schools if you could maintain the grades for free. You could go. You didn't need a student loan. If you could actually maintain the grade, you could go to, they had this written into their charters. Today, it's all schools for, you know, most of your colleges now, which is why professors at colleges weren't speaking up when people were not following the science, but were actually following CNN and MSNBC. They weren't, weren't following the science. They were following the, the mountains of Samaria that were telling you lies with fake news. But they wouldn't speak up because their universities were getting millions of dollars from taxpayers through these men who exercised authority. And so, therefore, you couldn't get the truth out. You, If you were listening to us, we were telling you before anybody else uh, was getting into the news exactly what was going on and what was coming about. At least enough so that you could make good decisions based on real science. And we still have pages up at Preparing You. Look up numerous scientists that preparing you and you just give you a small list of scientists who were telling you what was going on. But, back to Jordan. Uh, he talks about young men being weakened because of the fact that uh, they want the, in the schools, they want the, the young men to be docile, harmless, obedient, above all shades of uh, Dolores Umbridge, which is, I guess, a character from, I actually had to look that up. I wasn't sure who that is, but, uh, that's, uh, that's a lady in Harry Potter. And, uh, who is not necessarily very likable. <laughs> but it's bringing about this total demoralization, he says. Is this, this, Damaging ideology, which essentially consists of three accusations. The number one, he says, human culture, particularly in the West, is best construed as an oppressive patriarchy motivated by the desire, willingness, and ability to use power defined as the compulsion of others against their will to attain what are purely selfish and self-serving ends. Uh, 
it's it's part of this postmodernism that comes up with the idea that friendship is exploitation and political disagreement is war and business arrangements is based on deception and theft. And of course, business arrangements can be based on deception and theft, but in the legal system, that would be fraud or theft, and you would have a recourse. The reason that the courts, and this was required, I mean, the early founders of the United States, and even before the United States Constitution was created, they warned that the Constitution was only for a moral nation. And when they say moral, they were using a religious definition based on the fact that religion was a pious performance of a duty to your fellow man as well as to God. But see, your duties to your fellow man are now being performed by men who exercise authority because everybody went to men who exercise authority one over the other to get benefits for free at the expense of their neighbor and then they're wondering why we're in trouble. That is why we're in trouble. It's because we abandon the ways of God. Now, that manifests itself in lots of different ways. The breakdown of marriage. You, you When you... We've explained this, that you see clearly in the black community, but you also see it now spread out in the white community and the Asian community. And again, I hate to even use such ridiculous terms. In the community of mankind, the more you go to the social welfare by the state through men who exercise authority, the more you will break down the family. Because the exercise of responsibility is what gives the family the strength that it needs. But according to Black Lives Matter, according to these uh, postmodernist philosophies, family doesn't exist. There is no need for family. There is no need for loyalty and uh, and, and and staying true to your spouse there's no need for that you can do whatever you want because your truth is your truth but your truth is not the truth and the train will prove me out so the second accusation has to do with human activity particularly that undertaken in the west is fundamentally a planet despoiling enterprises this is the false accusation Despoiling enterprise, the human race is a threat to the ecological utopia that existed before us and that could hypothetically exist in our absence. Well, the ecological utopia that they talk about never did exist. Nature is very cruel. Nature is very unforgiving. And, uh, you know, if you were actually a student of history, and you actually, you know, it's been my practice for, for, you know, almost three quarters of a century to try to go and get it straight from the horse's mouth. You know, I didn't read stories about, uh, I, I, I did this always when I was growing up, but even more so when I saw my children growing up. I didn't just read books about, you know, uh, Lewis and Clark. I read what Lewis and Clark actually wrote and what other people wrote, actually wrote who knew Lewis and Clark. 
what George Washington actually wrote, what Thomas Jefferson actually wrote, and what people wrote Thomas Jefferson and about Thomas Jefferson, rather than simply read accounts by historians, because that's always filtered through. That's why I went and studied Hebrew and studied Greek, so I could go and read the original text. And then why I study so much of history is so that I can see the context. And what you, but ultimately, with all that, looking for the patterns, which is what, you know, I've watched Jordan for a long time. I've, I've studied his history. When he first entered college, he was a socialist. Uh, he believed in that. He wasn't far from communism. But just like Thomas Sowell was a communist when he started uh, his uh, career coming out of colleges. But he isn't now. I quoted uh, Thomas Sowell who said, uh, you cannot subsidize irresponsibility and expect people to become more responsible. Which is the whole crooks. It just jumps into the face of Cloward and Piven and these ideas of LBJ, of great society, that we're going to subsidize irresponsibility, which inevitably the social welfare state does. And you would think, well, that's just incompetence on the part of the social welfare state that they're subsidizing irresponsibility and expecting people to become more responsible. But the reality is that is the plan. They want to weaken you. Do you do you weaken your own children? Do you weaken yourself? Uh, that could play out in lots of different ways. I was thinking just before the program that you know I have so much that I could share with you that's going on, and I'm jumping along here so that we can get through this. But I could do a program every day because people are so far from what. They need to know. It's there to find out. It's there to discover, but they have to have ears to hear and eyes to see. <laughs> Did I get that right? I didn't say eyes to hear. <laughs> but uh, that's the fact. That we have been subsidizing irresponsibility with our social welfare program. That's why social welfare must be by free will offerings. You must feel the sting of the sacrifice in the choice to make the sacrifice anyway. I, I heard, I listened to a criticism of Jordan Peterson by some woke, he might even be a professor, I didn't look into that, he's not very old. But, you know, he, I could, I could, I could hear the snake slithering <laughs> as he spoke. Very calm, very lax, uh, I, you know, I didn't, I, I won't share a link to him because it, it, it's just is it would be good to do a show where I show little things of what he says. But he's so slithery, you know, that you if you really want to catch a snake, which I have ca caught hundreds of snakes over the years, uh, you have to anticipate the moves of the snake. You have to understand the snake. You have to be the snake, as as wise as the serpent, but as harmless as a dove. And this guy is not harmless. He talks about like, he gives an example. If I choose to give the money in my pocket to a poor man, that is my business. That is my right. We absolutely agree on that. But that's not where the woke 
social welfare by the state, the socialism by the state, by, by the communists are doing. They're not taking the money out of their pocket and giving to the poor. They're taking the money out of their neighbor's pocket. But he didn't mention that. He just says well, socialism and communism make sense. That Marxism makes sense. Because we should take care of the poor. But he, I, I agree we should take care of the poor. In a way that strengthens the poor. But the system of LBJ, the system of FDR, the system of Nimrod, the system of Cain, weakens the poor. And it weakens the poor so that men who seek power can seek power unopposed. Which is why you just had the shutdowns for two years virtually unopposed. You had some noise making. But they got away with it. They devastated the economy. And soon there will be food shortages just like you've never dreamed. And they want that. But not long after that, there won't be so many people to feed. But they're, they're sowing chaos. Because Klaus Schwab thinks he has a plan. But like I, I said before, you should not make a deal with the devil. And he doesn't understand that. Because the devil is like a train that wants to, he wants you to lose dominion so that he can have dominion. He does not share dominion. He does not share rulership. So, this uh, accusation number two, this is the fundamental that the planet is despoiled. And like I was saying, Lewis and Clark, when they were coming across this ecological utopia, they found areas where there were clouds of fleas and not a blade of grass anywhere. And prairie dogs that had chewed up the ground that the buffalo would not even go near that ground. There were so many holes and so many fleas. They avoided it. They went around it. There were whole seas of buffalo that drowned during the winter because they were overpopulated. There were broken leg buffalo and everything. Of course, the wolves could pull them down because they, with so many bulls, they were constantly fighting and killing until the, only the strongest survived, which is why you get a buffalo that looks like a buffalo. You bring the wolves in to keep the animals away from the shoreline to prevent erosion, but you don't see the calves and the, and the, and the females that are gutted and killed in the woods by the wolves. Who kill for sport. Wolves will kill for sport. Cougars will kill for sport. They don't have refrigerators. They kill because they need to kill for tomorrow. Even though they have enough today. Yeah, when they're completely full, they don't do as much hunting. But they will kill more than they need by far. They will decimate the herds. Ecological management is part of that first commandment of God. To dress it and keep it. And there are many things that we can do. It. Now, admittedly, that many people did not dress and keep it very well. But giving power to men to exercise authority one over the other is no guarantee for a better management program. Believe me. I have seen the management programs coming out of bureaucracy and they are devastating to nature. But the idea that there was an ecological utopia 
the, is nonsense. The same as, you know, the idea of that the Indians were all at peace and loving one another before we came. They were enslaving one another. Even the the Trail of Tears you hear about, if you actually study the details of that, one of the hardest things about the Trail of Tears is that the Indians wanted to take all their slaves with them. And that, so there wasn't enough to eat. But that's, they don't tell you that part. They don't tell you that, that uh, Indians rose up against the Aztecs because they were so brutal, murdering, enslaving thousands, tens of thousands of people. No, there was no utopia here, ecologically or socially, before the white man came. He did not necessarily bring a utopia either. But what did come to America is the right to choose for yourself and the consequences of those choices. Socialism tries to take away those consequences and it breeds disaster. No, we should go back to suffering the consequences. Can you imagine if everybody, there was no social welfare by the state. There was only social wealth, social welfare by free will choice in the community. People would be a lot more cooperative. Oh, there'd be people who would not give and people who would not share and the people who would, but there would be no system to use. And, you know, if you were going to depend upon your children for your social welfare and your neighbor for your social welfare, I know people who never had any children. So who would they go to for their social security? Well, they could invest. They're just not going to go to the state. But they could also invest in their community. They could help other families. They could help, you know, their extended family become Uncle John. We had Aunt Fanny. Never had any children. But she helped all of her family and siblings take care of their children. And she was taken care of in return. My grandfather took care of people that were not even related and provided them with college. Those college graduates would have seen to the care of my grandfather if he ever fell on hard times. That's the charity you need to cultivate. That is moving towards the kingdom. And Christ gave us a way in which to do that. And he appointed an, a called out group, an ecclesia, to minister that daily ministration through charity, through love, not through force, not through fear, not through fealty, but through the perfect law of liberty. That's what the church was doing. If your church is not doing that, just heard on the news just before the show started, that churches are having a hard time. They're not getting as much donations because inflation is taking a lot of the money away from the people. Get used to that. Get used to disappointment. And so they, they put up, I don't know, was it a million dollars? I don't know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. And it was gone in a matter of hours. Because there's this great need to keep these churches afloat, but the churches had not been keeping the people afloat. The churches, you know, 150 years ago, all your social welfare was managed through churches that did not exercise authority, but exercised love and charity. There were churches that were lost in their own doctrines and dogmas. Otherwise, we wouldn't have gone 
so far down the wrong road, the wrong side of the river. But that is part of our history and understanding that history. I don't want to lay guilt upon you. But we need to repent and go back the other way. We need to organize ourselves and free assemblies according to that perfect law of liberty and start take back our responsibilities to care for one another by choice. And that begins by giving choice to others. Nobody has to donate. Nobody has to share. Nobody even has to sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. But if you don't do that, you may not receive the revelation of the real Holy Spirit and not know what is coming or what to do about it. Uh, we're told that we're facing some sort of Malthusian catastrophe, uh, Jordan goes on to say, some overpopulation and the bio- biosphere's degradation. The reality is that we could handle... 22 billion people on this planet and not degrade the environment, actually improve it. It's quality, not quantity, that is the problem. And we have bred a gigantic society of selfish people who are absolutely comfortable with the idea of forcing their neighbor to contribute to their welfare. And if the neighbor says anything about it, they will shout them down. They will even kill them like you see the microcosm of what is coming in the destruction by men like Popot, Mao, and Stalin. That is your prophecy of things to come. You need to repent if you're going to have that, be back in that garden, that protected place. You need to walk the walk in the way of Christ. And the way of Christ is not the way of force. It's not the way of covetous practices. It's not the way of pride and arrogance. But the way of righteousness. So the accusation three that he talks about is this is that somehow there's supposed to be this damnable male ambition. It's competitiveness. I had somebody here not too long ago, and I was talking about how people talking about the, you know, toxic masculinity. And I said it, it's it, that's ridiculous. There's a toxic immorality mixed with toxic uh, with masculinity may become toxic, but it isn't the masculinity that is toxic. It's the immorality. And this is, of course, why Jordan is talking about young men having to play the roughhouse and, you know, like lion cubs. They're not tearing the flesh off of one another, but they're wrestling. But in that wrestling, in that rough and tumble, they also learn how to pull their punches. They become stronger, but they also learn. Anybody studying martial arts, at least in most places, they're teaching you how to be dangerous but also teaching you how to be forgiving, how to be responsible. It's very common to see Essenes, which are the most peaceful people in Judea and around the whole Roman Empire, practicing with swords, understanding battle tactics, but also understanding charity, understanding forgiveness, understanding tolerance. It's a strange mix. But it's the mix that is absolutely essential if we are going to 
actually find the righteousness of God, which we are supposed to be seeking. So, anyway, we'll, we'll continue this in a moment, and uh, maybe we'll even begin to get into what's good or bad about tribalism. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So, this idea that we see of uh, that uh, Jordan is railing against really comes out of this whole modernism and postmodernism philosophy that was supposedly counteracting the age of reason. And to some degree, I can see why that counteracting would take place in any case, but the the way the modernists and postmodernists postmodernists were doing it was going farther down the wrong way rather than the right because the age of reason is suggesting by some of the definitions of the age of reason we have an essay on that is that uh, that through your logical mind alone you can come up with the answers that you need. As if you could capture truth in a well-written essay and like a genie in a bottle, you've got the truth. Yeah, I wrote it down. I sent you a letter and it had the truth in it. The truth is is not in the letter. The truth is in reality. The letter is about that reality that we perceive. But the reality we perceive is again back to our opinion. It is not the I am. It is not the what is. It's what we think is. Which may be accurate to some degree, but is never perfectly accurate. And certainly our explanations of what is is not perfectly accurate. You know, I mean, it's like, you know, a train coming down the track and you misidentify the railroad company the train is coming from. It does not change the outcome. The the train is still coming. And it's it's still going to smash you. It's still going to destroy you. That's the reality. It, the fact that you believe the train is not really there. Do you believe that the light on the train is the light at the end of the tunnel? It does not change the fact that it's the train. Your truth does not trump the train. It's coming. And you, you need to realize that and see that for what it is. And, you know, when we get to, let, let's take a, one more look at uh, this third thing that uh, Jordan Peterson brings up in this uh, accusations, these false accusations, is the false accusation of the postmodernists, uh, like who he always refers to as the Joker, uh, Jacques Derrida, and there are others uh, that had this contempt for what they call the foul logocentric conceptual structure of civilization. Like, like all the problems come from the fact that we have this logocentric, this hated uh, word of all things is the divine logos. This idea of revelation. There is no revelation. There is no God. You know, no Harari is echoing this same nonsensical philosophy. And, and of course... One of the reasons why people think there is no God is because they see all these people who go to churches and say there is a God and they believe in God, but they're actually workers of iniquity. 
And, of course, then there, there are those who argue that, you know, how could there be a God when it allows for children to starve and all this kind of stuff, when it's actually the people that allow. God gave you freedom of choice, and without freedom of choice, there is no love. Without the freedom of to choose to sacrifice, there is no love. I mean, this is so paramount in the relationship of husband and wife, man and woman. They're going to produce these children and they're going to have to sacrifice to raise these children up, to care for these children. And hopefully if the children see their parents caring for their parents, those children will care for their immediate parents because they saw them caring for their grandparents. Which is why Social Security was so essential to bring down civilization is that you're not, you don't have to do the care for your parents. You have to do no more ought for your parents. Jesus talks about this. The Corbin of the Pharisees was the social security system of Herod and the Pharisees. Where you pay into the temple, they put the money in the treasury. There, there were two treasuries. Corbin is also translated treasury. That's supposed to be your trust fund. <laughs> your social security trust fund. That's the Corbin of the Pharisees. And then there is the other treasury, which is the treasury of the king, the ruler. And and we show you on uh, on the page on Social Security at Preparing You that there is no division of funds. That if one fund is bankrupt and operating in debt, the other one, no matter how much money you put in, is still in debt. Because if the government's in debt, those funds go as collateral. Not only do those funds go as collateral, but you are collateral for the debt as well, which is how you curse your children. Because you produced your children, and so they're now for your children are going to be held as collateral for debt as well. Now, I mean, people want to say, where's the evidence of this debt? And, you know, they, they got things like birth certificates. And we write about some of those things too, but we usually write about it in the laws of Rome. Rome had this same idea that you could manumit the children from the authority of the parents by making the state your father, which is why Jesus says, call no man on earth father. He says, if you're going to pray for your daily bread, you pray to your father in heaven. And how does your father in heaven provide you you with your daily bread by the performance of your duty to God and your fellow man. Because that is what God wants. He wants you to love your neighbor as yourself. And so if you love your neighbor, you will take care of your neighbor accordingly. But through free will offerings, not the legal charity of FDR, LBJ, Popot, Stalin, all those guys, Cain, Nimrod, they all exercise authority to provide you with those benefits. If you think that's okay... You've already turned your back on God. Jacques Derrida just wants to tear everything. He's a deconstructionist. He wants to tear everything down. And I don't want to just pick on poor Jacques, but there's a lot of guys who were saying this. And this is the essence of what became postmodernism in the political and social justice warrior scheme of things. But they, they have the blind eye so they can't see the immorality of this. Because they were born with that blind eye. It wasn't original sin. It was the sin. I mean, original sin may have brought you to the precipice where you made these bad choices. 
But when you created your public school system, it started to back in the late 1800s. And other systems where you were going to tax your neighbor because he only had legal title to his property. He said, well, we can, we can put a levy on this property because he only has a legal title. And this is how we will get what we need, what we want. You know, free school, free health care, free fire departments, free police departments. We don't have to have a hue and cry in our community when somebody robs somebody. I've given you so many stories where somebody was robbed. And I tried to say, well, write a letter, explain how you were robbed by these people who cheated, defrauded them. And so that I can give it to the other people that are following these guys because they're about to be robbed as well. He wouldn't do it. Yeah, I just don't want to get involved. You are involved. If you cared about your neighbor, you would write this down and give testimony when you see wickedness. But people don't want to do it because they have become weak. They have gone the wrong way. And they have set their whole society up for destruction. So... In the article on tribalism, I'm not going to go into it, there's not enough time to go into it deeply, but I do write, hard times produce strong men. Strong men produce good times. Good times produce weak men. And weak men produce hard times. So there's kind of a cycle there, and this is, you know, there are actually whole theorems of society that are based on this idea of this cyclical nature, but are we condemned to that cyclical nature or are there certain principles and precepts that we can apply in our society to break that cycle? You know, strong men produce good times, so you want to produce strong men. You want to produce children that are strong. Well, if you get the government to take care of your children, to provide for your children, to provide for your parents, to provide for your society through the exercise of force, you're not going to get strong men. You're going to get weak men. And when men degenerate and become weak, tyrants will fill the gap. Which, you know, the famous quote by Pollitt, well, it's famous in my book, but most people don't ever hear it except for me. <laughs> it's a quote of Polybius where if you become accustomed to live at the expense of others and depend for your livelihood on the property of others, which is what everybody in the United States has done, wasn't what they were doing to begin with, but it's what they're certainly doing now. They will degenerate when they institute the rule of force and violence, which providing your public school through force and violence, which is the way you do it now, and all the other benefits that you get from these men who exercise authority, you do it through force and violence. If somebody does not want to contribute, I mean, when the guy used to come down the the aisles in church and stick the basket in front of you, you could put money in or not put money in. There wasn't another guy standing there with a club that would hit you if you didn't put enough money in. But the problem with the church is that they were supposed to be taking care of all the social welfare like the early church was through free will offerings through charity, through love, which is what Christ commanded. But you chose, no, let's do it this other way, the way Nimrod used to do it, the way the Cain used to do it, the way that Caesar used to do it, the way the Pharaoh used to do it. And then you wonder why you're in the bondage of Egypt. And you wonder why you're blind 
to the revelation of the Holy Spirit. Because you turned your back on the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit told you back when this was all coming about. Something wrong with this. But it's not enough to say you believe in Jesus. You have to actually become a doer of the word. And being a doer of the word means to sit down and organize yourself with other people who want to be doers of the words. And start caring about one another as much as you care about yourself. Sacrificing for one another. Not judging one another. Judging how you want to sacrifice. And how you don't want to sacrifice. What you want to share and what you don't want to share. That's still yours. That's the perfect law of liberty. And you will probably make mistakes. You will probably give to people who are undeserving. And uh, sometimes you will fail to give to people who are deserving. Who are working really hard. But hopefully you also learn the other things that makes the society strong. Which is humility. Willing to see you made a mistake. Willing to see you were slothful. Willing to see that you weren't right. I've, I've told the story. I won't tell the story now. I don't have enough time. But my father came and apologized to me when I was a little tiny kid. Because he didn't understand what was going on and he was a little short with me. And he came in and apologized. That's huge. Huge. That my father came and apologized for being a little short. That's what makes strong men. Is to have that humility. If you don't have humility, you will not have a strong society. If you... If you just apply for the benefit. You're praying for the benefit. You're praying for the entitlement at the expense of your neighbor. You're taking a bite out of your neighbor by applying for a benefit from a bankrupt government. So I just said the same thing in three different ways. Did any of them sink in? <laughs> so what is the solution? In order to see all these things, you have to start to sacrifice. The daily sacrifice. Your time, your energy, your pride, your vanity. And see that you're, you've been wrong. And that you need to repent. Think differently. Go a different way. Walk that way. Not just say, Lord, Lord, but actually go this other way. So when Peterson calls out to the Christian churches, is there to remind, he says the Christian churches are there to remind people, young men included, and perhaps even uh, first and foremost, that they have a woman to find, a garden to walk in. A family to nurture, an ark to build, a land to conquer, a ladder to heaven to build. Yeah, this is his words. Now, we don't actually do that, but the ladder you build is actually built by Christ. We can't even find it. We can't even see it. But what we need to do is dress it and keep it. Keep it. We need to practice pure religion, which is how you take care of the needy of society through faith, hope, and charity, unspotted by the force, fear, and violence of the world, which is the way you're doing it now. And see, the beauty of the gospel is that you as an individual, because the gospel is what allows you to be an individual, 
when you as individuals begin to make these choices, you become less appetizing to the beast and will access that revelation in the moment for you. Because I don't know what you need to do to be saved. What what you need to do to go where you need to go. To be where you need to be. To do what you need to do. But God does. And he can reveal it in your heart and in your mind. But you have to think differently. Stop thinking it's okay to take from your neighbor. Don't, don't go to the Christian churches that have not taught the whole gospel. I mean, you can go to any... I'm not telling you not to. I mean, you can go to anyone you want. Because the choice is yours. But it's not a good choice to go to churches that haven't been telling the truth of the gospel. That it is not okay to covet your neighbor's goods. Two men who exercise authority. Christ made that so crystal clear. It is not to be that way with you, Matthew, Mark, Luke. But they are that way. And this is bringing an utter catastrophe upon all life on this earth. And you're not prepared for it. Because you haven't been going the way of righteousness. You've been going an unrighteous way. And the churches are just become your comforter instead of the Holy Spirit. And they've created a fictional Holy Spirit that is based on emotion, not on the spirit of righteousness. So, in in his deal, he's calling us to go to churches and he's calling the churches to put out a sign and say, young men, come here. Ultimately, what he's saying is that you need to take back your responsibilities and he thinks that you will do that by going to churches. But most of these churches are not giving you the opportunity to take back your responsibilities. They're tickling your ears, which is how we got to where we're at. It's, a, it's amazing that he, he sees what they should be preaching and assumes, I guess he doesn't spend enough time in churches, <laughs> that they're actually preaching what they should be preaching. Taking back your responsibilities, and this is what, you know, I've also worked on our home church page. And I need to go back there and organize it even better because I'm, I'm conversing with lots of people that are in home churches. Because the original, the, the original Christian community was elder driven. And by elder, I mean the heads of families. Because the way it was organized was ten elders got together. Ten elders of families got together and formed a free assembly. Picked a minister and he got together with nine other ministers like himself. So that they would connect a network of 10,000, 50,000, 100,000 people all across the Roman Empire. That's what they were doing at Pentecost. They weren't just getting wet baptism. They were creating those connections. That's what they're doing in Acts 6 where he says, look out amongst yourselves and find men you trust. We know who some of those men were. We know where they lived. They didn't all live in the same place. We should know what their function was. 
to provide a daily ministration. They're not talking about a daily ministration in that little town. They're talking about the daily ministration we see Paul and Barnabas ministering all over the known world during major dearth, shortages of food. And here in the news we're seeing people talking about shortages of food. So, do you have a network whereby you can make sure the people of your network have enough food? Your network should include truckers, wheat farmers, uh, local what are they, community supported agriculture is CSA, I guess it is. You should be creating that network of people who will deliver food, share food, provide food, and care, and community, because they want to go the way of Christ. Because that's what the early church had. And that's why Constantine eventually tried to emulate what the Christians were doing, because they fared through those depressions, shortages, earthquakes, wars, and rumors of wars. They fared well as the Christian community. They thrived during that period. Because responsibility makes the next generation strong. It makes you strong, but it also makes the next generation strong. The good times takes away the burden of that responsibility. You don't, you know, dad makes enough money, I don't need to go out and get a job. Then I become lazy. No. This is this classic that you need to put the burden of responsibility on the individuals. Those growing up, those already grown up. You need and you need to do it on a community basis. And this is why Christ commanded that the people sit down in the tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands. So that they could take back their responsibilities of caring for one another as much as they care for themselves. You can find all kinds of excuses why you put that off. But that is not the Holy Spirit telling you to put that off. Because what Christ commanded has to be in conformity with the Holy Spirit. And so that's why you should be doing it. It doesn't mean you'll do it perfectly. It doesn't mean that you you won't change your mind. See, again, when I mentioned the, the imperial cult of Rome, you could not get out of that cult. You couldn't go around and file some affidavit there and say, well, I'm getting out of that cult. But Christ provided a way in which the Judeans could get out of the, the cult of the Pharisees the Corbin of the Pharisees, which was a cult. You signed up, you're in, you can't get out. That's the nature of a cult. It binds you in. And it tries to close the doors where you can't get out. Doesn't want you to hear anything else. Doesn't want you to do anything else. Doesn't want you to have your own account. Wants to control your own money, your funds, your force, your contributions. That's a cult. But Jesus had a different plan. You can leave anytime you want. You can gather anytime you want. Because the responsibility of making those choices are in your heart and in your mind. You have to make the choice to show up for your neighbor. Because that will strengthen you. 
That sacrifice will strengthen you. It's like lifting weights. You know, there's a certain way to lift weights to build muscle. And there's a certain way not to lift weights to build muscle. And if you want a strong society, you have to put the responsibility of choice back on the people. As Archibald McLeish says, if you take away that choice, you turn the individual into a person, a thing. So the way back to liberty is to take back that responsibility. Not fill out papers, not not endless words of uh, uh, of patriotism. But it's taking back your responsibilities to one another. And to set your neighbor free. Because you will not be free unless you set your neighbor free. So until next time, peace on your house. And may God be with you. See you on the network. Join us at preparingyou.com. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net.